Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. I am Navy vet Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And today we're going to get an incredible history lesson about the war in Afghanistan, made even more interesting by the fact that our guest served in the Royal Navy and is a dual citizen of both America and Britain. Toby Harnden was a British naval officer turned journalist and then acclaimed author. He spent almost 25 years working for British newspapers as a foreign correspondent, He was a Washington bureau chief, and for The Telegraph, he spent 17 years based in London, Belfast, Washington, Jerusalem, and Baghdad, where he finished as the U.S. editor. He's been up close and personal with the violence of the IRA in Ireland. He's seen firsthand the cost of war in Fallujah, and he covered the Welsh guards on the battlefields of Afghanistan. And on the show today, we'll talk about the very first CIA intelligence officers and special forces troops that went behind enemy lines in Afghanistan weeks after 9-11. Toby, welcome to CBS Eye on Vets. Hey, Phil, thanks very much. You, you make me sound very interesting, but, you know, here I am sitting in my uh, office in Northern Virginia, but thank you. <laughs> well, maybe today's not the most interesting day in your life, but certainly <laughs> what you capture in your book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Man, that's interesting. Tell me about it. So it's about the first eight Americans behind enemy lines after the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks. One of them was Mike Spann, where the title First Casualty came from, because he was the first American killed in combat um, on November 25th, uh, 2001. But it's really a story of these these eight guys who were flown into the unknown, dropped um, into Taliban-controlled territory, not knowing what they were going to find. And what they encountered for the next two months. And also a story, I mean, ironically, given, you know, sort of the tragedy uh, of the way we left Afghanistan in, in 2021. It was it's also a story of success, how, uh, you know, small bands of Americans acting as advisors to the um, indigenous allies uh, in Afghanistan, the Northern Alliance, actually achieved victory, 
much, much more quickly than anybody expected. So sort of an incredible human story, but as you say, also, um, I think a crucial part of history and also, you know, something with a lot of relevance to the present. And it's something you and I share in common. We've both been inside CIA headquarters in Langley and, uh, I'll share this openly. I don't think I'm violating anything here. But one of the coolest parts is there's a little museum inside CIA headquarters. And one of the exhibits is dedicated to Mike Spann. And it shows some of the artifacts from that initial mission. It is incredible. And you are just so filled with pride when you see the story of this very first team known as Team Alpha that went to avenge 9-11. And in fact, it's a lesson really in how the global war on terrorism got off on the complete wrong foot because the second we got away from small operational detachment alphas, little 12-man teams working by, with, and through the indigenous people, the second we got away from that and brought in, as you'd mentioned in the book several times, a two-star, a three-star general to come in and do the interviews and make the press, the second they did that, we got away from the formula that worked. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I completely agree with you on CIA headquarters. And I just went to see the new museum a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, in there is the Schrade multi-tool that Glenn, who was a CIA medic, um, who's featured in the book, he, he performed a field amputation with this basically like a leather man. And that, that multi-tool is, is in the, um, is in the museum. Uh, Mike Spann's AKMS, uh, Kalashnikov rifle that um, he was uh, he was firing when he when he was killed. That's in there. And um, one of my favorite um, items in the museum actually is um, is David Tyson's boots. So David Tyson was the in a way, he's the sort of the central character alongside Mike Spann of first casualty. He was a case officer, a linguist, a former academic, sort of in some ways, a sort of every man, you know, and the least militarily kind of adept and trained of, of, of the eight of them. The other seven on the team were sort of fully kitted out at um, CIA headquarters and they had the cool gear or at least the REI gear, you know, all the camping shops. And so he just grabbed a pair of basically kind of, you know, low-grade hiking boots from his closet. And that's what he wore in Afghanistan for 40 days. Um, November 25th, when he was with Mike Spann, um, he was... You know, he was running towards the sound of gunfire. He shot dead the guys who were on top of Mike's van. He killed, I don't know, dozens of Al-Qaeda getting out there with with AKs and and his pistol. And um, he was wearing these boots. And when he got back, um, his son, Mark, christened them Dad's Lucky Boots. And so and they're in the CIA museum. These um, <laughs> these boots, you know, Dad's Lucky Boots. So, oh, yeah. Man. So in a way, that's my favorite artifact there. Now, before we dive deeper into the book, a few cliff notes about Royal Navy vet Toby Harnden. When he got out of the Navy, he wanted some action. So armed with the instinct and the courage to follow the gunfire, he covered the violence of the IRA. You know, there was a not a full scale war, but a sort of, you know, an insurgency, um, a guerrilla warfare campaign. And it's this tiny sort of place. And they also everybody spoke English. Um, and so I I, I guess I was just young and in some ways naive. I didn't think about not going to places. So if something went bang, I went there. And um, if someone was shot, I'd go and, you know, see if I could talk to the family and the friends. And and it's a pretty, in some ways, gregarious type of society. And if you just show up and you ask the questions, 
you know, you may, may get the occasional door slammed in your face, but people, you know, people really kind of wanted to talk. And so, and I guess I've always been attracted to, I don't know, the dark underbelly of, of things. And so to me, you know, it's fascinating to talk to terrorists, people who've killed people, people who've done some really bad things. I've also always been really, really interested in getting two sides of, of the same story. So I remember once, actually, this is a separate thing. I, I remember interviewing a mafia hitman and the guy who was a prosecutor in Ohio who, who'd been shot by this guy in his kitchen and survived. And just hearing the account from either side, you know, oh, I was just in my kitchen, you know, doing the washing up and I heard this noise outside and, you know, oh, and I was just creeping up the the uh, the path and I could see the light on in the kitchen. I could see the guy doing the washing up. I, I kind of, lo- I love that sort of both sides of the divide. And so I guess I got a, a kind of a thirst for doing that. The Irish news media, government, and general public also had a thirst for his dark side. And his book, Bandit Country, led to the formation of the Smithwick Tribunal, which investigated, as Harnden had alleged in his book, that there was collusion between the IRA and the police force and that it was responsible for the 1989 murders of two senior officials. In December 2013, the tribunal confirmed his allegations and concluded that there was collusion. Harnden remained a major newspaper reporter while preparing for his next book, Dead Men Risen. In a quote from one of the book reviews, It challenges every citizen of this country to examine exactly what we're asking the soldiers to do in Afghanistan. Yeah, so I'd I'd already spent um, a lot of time in Iraq in starting in 03, but certainly mostly 04, 05, and I was in Fallujah, Battle of Fallujah in November 2004. So I'd seen, you know, a fair amount of combat. Then I got, you know, I got posted to, got married, posted to Washington again. But I was always drawn to, um, you know, this war that was, the war that was going on. And there was a friend of mine, actually, it connects back to bandit country because there was a friend of mine, uh, Rupert Thornelow, who was a captain, an intelligence officer in Northern Ireland, who was a friend and also kind of a great source back in the um, in the late 90s. You know, fast forward 2009, he was a lieutenant colonel. He was a battalion commander and he was killed. He was killed um, July the 1st, 2009. And I was like, holy, Rupert's been killed. And it it ended up, I didn't intend it to be this way, but it ended up being an account of, you know, the raw, visceral nature of combat, you know, as that quote kind of suggested behind the sort of statistics of, you know, a British soldier was killed in Helmand province today, you know, and now the weather. It was, you know, the reality of, of war, but it was also, I guess it became really a book about what happens if you under-resource and under-equip troops and don't have a clear aim. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And today we're talking to Toby Harnden, a Royal Navy veteran, a global journalist, and acclaimed author. He's reported from 33 countries while based in London, Belfast, Jerusalem, Baghdad, and even Washington, D.C., for the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Times of London. In his most recent book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11, we hear how eight CIA officers are dropped into the mountains of northern Afghanistan in October of 2001. They are Team Alpha, an eclectic band of linguists, tribal experts, 
elite warriors, and the first Americans to operate inside Taliban-held territory. Their covert mission is to track down al-Qaeda and stop the terrorists from infiltrating the United States again. We'll jump back into my interview now with Toby Harnden, where we discuss the enemy. The Taliban and al-Qaeda. They're used so often in so many different situations. We want to kill the Taliban. We want to go to Mazar Sharif right. and upset the Taliban. Oh, those guys are al-Qaeda fighters. For the American, trying to get my head around this, they, they are the same thing or they're not the same thing? So they're allies, certainly, uh, now, and, they've, and you know, the Taliban have never renounced um, al-Qaeda, and that's always been a kind of a dream of American policymakers and some elements within the CIA, and that's actually a, this kind of a little subplot in the, in the book about that, because immediately after 9-11, uh, the station chief in Islamabad um, made strenuous efforts to try to persuade the Taliban to give up bin Laden and, you know, split with al-Qaeda. Uh, but basically, the Taliban are Afghans. Uh, or Pakistanis, you know, they don't recognize the, the border. Pashtuns, uh, Islamic fundamentalists and brutal killers. But al-Qaeda is, is, is um, fundamentally Arab and international. And the Taliban is focused uh, on Afghanistan and um, the and al-Qaeda is focused on a sort of a worldwide jihad. One of the fascinating parts about the story in First Casualty, I sort of felt, was the sort of interplay between the two, two groups. And it's it becomes sort of personified, actually, by John Walker Lind. Uh, so American, you know, kind of rich white kid from California who converts to Islam when he's 16, goes on a supposed spiritual quest, you know, goes to Yemen, ends up Pakistan, and he ends up in Al-Qaeda. He's, he's known as the American Taliban, but he was Al-Qaeda. He was a foreign fighter. He went to an Al-Qaeda training camp. Um, and he was um, in a unit known as Brigade 055, or also Al-Ansar, the followers. And they're basically Al-Qaeda troops, like kind of shock troops, um, foreign fighters embedded within Taliban forces to kind of stiffen the spine of, of the Taliban, who are, you know, often just sort of farmers and take it or leave it. You know, they may sort of take up, you know, be fighting one day and just walk away the next you know, in 2001, after 9-11, it was, it was very clear. I mean, you talked about ODAs and the Green Berets and famous sort of horse soldiers who were alongside Team Alpha. They were focused on the Taliban and the tactical battle. But the CIA was focused on al-Qaeda. And, you know, you needed to knock the Taliban out of the way and, and, and overthrow that regime to get to al-Qaeda. But the focus was always on al-Qaeda. Let's jump into kind of who we meet in the book. It's basically the days leading up to 9-11, and you're introduced to these characters all while a history lesson is being woven. Uh, we meet on the American side, U.S. leaders, the president at the time, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. He was mad. He was mad that the DOD didn't have a plan for Afghanistan, yet the CIA did or didn't have a plan, but they had a rudimentary understanding yeah. because of people station chiefs around the world just unpack a little bit about the americans the administration and the tone that is set at the very beginning in the days and weeks just before 9-11 you know the book opens with david tyson who's flying from tashkent to london for a conference uh, at the cia station in london about stinger missiles which takes us right back to the 1980s and uh, the cia uh, arming the, the mujahideen uh, who were fighting the soviets um, and then you had Justin Sapp, who was a Green Beret on the team, who was underwater 
uh, at the um, at the Special Forces Diving School in Key West, and then Mike Span in headquarters. So I was like, "Wow!" So there's a guy in the air, there's a guy underwater, and there's a guy on the ground, and they're all and they're all going to come together as part of this this team. Um, but but yes, I mean, there's this, this sense um, before 9-11 within the CIA and specifically within the Counterterrorism Center, which was uh, led by Kofa Black, very sort of theatrical kind of legendary Africa division case officer and certainly George Tenet, the CIA director. And then people like David, who was working on the sort of Afghan portfolio out of Tashkent and going in and out of Afghanistan on secret missions, codenamed Jawbreaker, to meet with Northern Alliance figures. And there's this guy called Rich Blee, a, a very famous. He was the head of the, um, the the Alex station, the Bin Laden unit, who kind of, you know, he gets up in a meeting and he's like, they're coming here. You know, they've, they've had the 1998 embassy bombings, the USS Cole. We didn't know the date. We didn't know exactly how they were going to do it. But we knew they were coming to America. And neither the Clinton administration nor the Bush administration, you know, really wanted to to listen until... 9-11. And so then all the authorities that the CIA had sought to kill bin Laden, to um, link up with the Northern Alliance, to fight al-Qaeda, to overthrow the Taliban, all the things that the agency had wanted to do, they suddenly could do. And so you're right to say it wasn't a plan, but it was sort of a concept of operations, of, of going in there and working working um, with the indigenous allies to overthrow the Taliban and, and get to al-Qaeda. And that, that was what the CIA had. And remarkably, as you say, DOD didn't have a plan. And so the CIA saw its chance, you know, and and, and um, Kofa Black and, and George Tenet gave, you know, their presentations in the Situation Room and then at Camp David. Um, and Kofa, he's a, you know, he's a case officer, so he knows how to read people. He knew exactly what America felt. And he knew uh, President Bush and, and and what he wanted to hear. So Kofa Black came up with these sort of very kind of theatrical sort of phrases. And, and, and one of them was, was, you know, when we're finished, there are going to be flies walking across their eyeballs. <laughs> and and so CIA got the, got the job, you know, and CIA to the immense annoyance of, of, of Rumsfeld was was in the lead for Afghanistan. And, you know, frankly, did a pretty good job. And of course, you know, then mission creep set in and it's going to be Iraq and DOD was um, was leading in Iraq and it was a, a, a different different story there. Yeah. Amen. Now, that's 30 percent of what we're going to pick up in the opening chapters of this book. Another 30 percent will be the people on Team Alpha themselves. Let's chat quickly about David Tyson. You've mentioned a few times. He's first introduced flying from Tajikistan to London, where they're going to talk about a way to buy back Stinger missiles from Afghans because they're afraid they're going to fall into the wrong hands, namely the Taliban. But uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a CIA yeah. intelligence officer, lived in Uzbekistan, at one time didn't own shoes and almost went native. So, uh, yeah, so David Tyson, you know, he took me really seven years to persuade David to talk, you know, and um uh, eventually, you know, he shot me an email in, I think, early 2020 and said, I just retired. I just retired. You know, you still interested in talking? I was like, yes, I'm still interested in talking. Um, but I was always fascinated by the genesis of the book was probably way, way back in, I think, 2004 in Iraq, when another reporter um, said to me, hey, did you ever see German TV footage of that CIA officer sort of running for his life in in that fort in northern Afghanistan in um, in 2001? And I watched it and it was David Tyson who was wearing this kind of amalgam of American gear, 
and uh, like a uh, Afghan gear. He had like a kind of a, a robe on, and he was bearded, and he was he was grabbing grabbing a Kalashnikov and a, and a pistol, and he just shot all these guys. And Mike Spanner just been killed. And I was always fascinated by who he was and what he'd been through and how he'd been affected by it. And uh, David himself was 40. He was kind of the median age. There were a few guys in their early 30s. Um, but David is an original. I mean, he's from a very humble um, sort of Mennonite background in, in Pennsylvania. His brother is a plumber who lives in the family home, which has been been in the family for three generations and was, I think, built by David's grandfather and has basically never left Pennsylvania. But David discovered this huge talent for languages uh, when he was at college and also his a sort of fascination with world cultures. And he particularly focused on having initially learned Russian. He then particularly focused on Central Asia and Uzbekistan um, and Turkmen. He wrote a Turkmen dictionary. I mean, sort of in some ways, a real kind of nerd, you know, a real a deep thinker, you know, into the into the details of things and fascinated by people and why people do things and I mean he's sort of anthropologist. The reason why I really love this story was just what an eclectic bunch of people they were. I mean, so you had J.R. Seeger who was the chief. Um, he'd worked out of Islamabad station with the Mujahideen. He spoke diary. He was a case officer as well. So these guys weren't all elite warriors. You had Justin Sapp, 29-year-old Green Beret captain. Andy, who's still serving, about to retire. His cover's about to be lifted. He was a special forces reservist, paramilitary. And Mike Spann, you know, a former Marine, close air support specialist. And so this team was sort of like a pickup team, just sort of thrown together. But these are, you know, resourceful, resilient people who are just like, you give us the job and we'll work out how to do it. Fitting that together. So you really get to know and depict these people as people rather than sort of two-dimensional characters, you know, kicking down doors and, you know, shooting people in the head and stuff. And to do that, and also I hope, and I tried certainly with a sort of a light touch to link this to the bigger picture and the situation room and, and the White House, but without dwelling on, you know, all the politics of it and the Washington kind of stuff because where it's really at is these is these people on the ground uh the details you also stitched together i can tell were done by hours and hours and hours of interviews the one you know yeah one of the brave souls we cannot interview is michael span of course cia officer former marine was just beginning his career inside langley he had every reason not to go on this mission every reason in fact just recently been remarried to his wife, Shannon, who was also yeah. an intelligence officer. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a quote at the beginning of, of the book, you know, the Isaiah quote, who shall I send, you know, send me. Mike was sort of the epitome of that. And I think in some ways, the personification of America after 9-11. So a very kind of black and white, good and good versus evil sort of character, you know, a Southern conservative. And I mean, he was that way before 9-11, but I felt sort of country became kind of a lot more like him. Uh, on 9-11 and afterwards. 32 years old, a guy who'd already had a career in the in the Marine Corps. He'd actually joined the agency because he wanted more action. He wanted more meaning in his life and he didn't want to just do training. And I got to know Shannon, his widow, very, very well. Um, but they met on the farm. You know, this is sort of a 
you know, an unlikely sort of love story there, California lawyer, um, who's sort of very sort of smooth and po- and poised, a very sort of graceful person. And, you know, Mike, who's this, you know, military, you know, muscled um, Southern guy. And they meet on the farm, you know, as actually quite a lot of CIA couples do. And real Got quick for the listener, the farm, a training campus. Yes. Uh, my brother had mentioned it throughout his career, but it's somewhere near the Washington area, but it's where many of the CIA officers will go and they'll receive their formal training in the classroom. Yes. So it's near Williamsburg, but it's known as, as the farm. And so Shannon and Mike met there. She fell pregnant and she was divorced. Uh, they're both very religious and, um, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't planned on this. And so it's a really messy situation. Mike had two daughters from his first marriage. And then another thing, which again, you, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't sort of make this up. It, it transpires that Mike's ex-wife had terminal cancer. So these children lost their father and then their mother within the space of a few weeks. And Shannon uh, and Mike had a baby together, uh, Jake, uh, who was born in June t- 2001. So three months old on 9-11. And Mike's got this complicated situation. And, you know, Shannon said to me, that she briefly kind of thought you know, of, of saying to Mike, well, maybe this isn't the time, but she just realized that just wasn't who he was. And there was no way that he was, he, he was not going to go. And in fact, he sort of fought to get on, to, to get on the team. And he was, you know, they actually went on a weekend when they, when Mike was on standby, they went on a weekend to Williamsburg to, you know, where they met. He, he, he was concerned about being, being left behind. And he, you know, his view of the world was uh, it's actually something he'd said to his father, Johnny, you know, somebody has to be the person who's going to do the things that other people don't want to do. And that's that's what how he saw himself. And, you know, his daughter, Alison, was daddy. What you know, why do you why do you have to go? And he's, you know, I have to go to, pr- to protect the country. And so other da- other daddies don't have to go. So he didn't see actually a contradiction between protecting his country and protecting his family. He saw it as all part of the same thing. So that's that's who Mike Spann was. Mm, a true, true American patriot. And hero really is a is is just an exact accurate word to yeah. describe his life. He wasn't accidental. He was fully intentional and absolutely loved how you wove all that together in the beginning. We're also getting a history lesson about what an S show Afghanistan has been for decades. And you introduce us to uh, just just a few of these leaders that we would eventually have to try to align with. Give me bullet points on Ahmad Shah Massoud. So Ahmad Shah Massoud, um, he was the Tajik leader of the Northern Alliance. And David um, David Tyson had actually flown in um, into the Panjshir Valley, which was the, the one kind of small sliver of land that the Northern Alliance uh, held it, uh, amidst this sort of sea of, of Taliban control. But Ahmed Shah Massoud was assassinated by al-Qaeda uh, two days before 9-11. And so the Northern Alliance is essentially leaderless. Massoud was a very uh, charismatic character, sort of beloved by um, diplomats and the media. You know, he spoke French, he wrote, he wrote poetry, and he knew how to kind of play the West. And so he's taken out... And actually, the first CIA team in Afghanistan was the Jawbreaker team, and they flew into the Northern Alliance-controlled Panjshir Valley, and they found that basically the Tajiks didn't want to fight. And so that's when the kind of the torch passed to Dost, Abdul Rashid Dostum, and he he was the Uzbek warlord 
um, with this sort of reputation as this brutal, ferocious, take no prisoners, literally, guy who had, you know, he'd fought for the Soviets, he'd fought against the Taliban, he'd fought allied with the Taliban, he'd fought Massoud, he fought with Massoud, he fought against Massoud. So he's notorious for switching sides. State Department hated him. Most of CIA hated him. In fact, David had been pushed and others have been pushing to try and talk to uh, Dostum before 9-11. And as soon as 9-11 happens, you know, Dostum is there. He's got his horse-mounted uh, Uzbek soldiers. He's hiding out in the mountains. He wants to go fight the Taliban. Americans need an ally who's got the will and the capability of fighting the Taliban. So though the interests sort of aligned exactly. And so, you know, when Team Alpha flew in to the Darius Sufali Valley south of Mazari Sharif on October 17th, 2001, they didn't know whether he was going to, you know, welcome them with open arms or whether he was going to shoot them. Um, and um, but Dostum, you know, had, you know, he's done some really bad things in his life before and since. But um the Team Alpha members, you know, to this day, kind of revere him as this this guy who um, who who fought alongside them and was, you know, at America's side in in their hour of need. Yeah, let's just dive in a little deeper on him. You say he looked like the character from uh... Blue, uh, Bluto, a uh, Bluto from Popeye. I was kind of envisioning Blackbeard the pirate, but the same with the yeah, big he had a little beard bit of that as well. yeah, and a barrel chest and 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 yeah. just a fearsome guy. There's one part I want to get to. I guess they're getting ready to engage with a Taliban forces. I don't know if this is Mazi Sharif or whether this is just a little before that. And he sees them talking to his troops yeah. and, and, and he says that the Taliban deserve no mercy. They should be honored to die at our hands, fight like men possessed. And he is just so fierce. And then he turns around and he tells one of the CIA Intel officers there that, well, he's actually quite sophisticated. Yeah, that's right. So he he had his own. He had an airline and, um, you know, Mazari Sharif um, under Dostum, you know, before the Taliban arrived, had been kind of a modern, secular sort of, you know, Western style. You know, that's it was next to the Soviet Union. And so this was his this was his line you know, to, to JR. You know, I, I owned a Cadillac once, you know, I'm not just the guy in the mountains. I, I had a Cadillac. <laughs> Now, in the weeks that followed 9-11, al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters were living in relative safety in a mountainous region of Afghanistan. But our first mission to kill those responsible for the savage attack on our country was not led by the Department of Defense. It was, however, the CIA and a small team of intel officers and special forces troops known as Team Alpha. We hear what that fateful mission was like from a Royal Navy veteran global journalist and acclaimed author Toby Harnden, who after years of research and interviews wrote the definitive book on this covert operation entitled First Casualty, the CIA's mission to avenge 9-11. When they arrived, the mode of transport in the mountains when they couldn't drive any vehicles, uh, it was, was horses. And um, I mean, David Tyson um, is hilarious about this and we've done a number of talks together and he always gets a lot of laughs um, out of his experience with the horses because, you know, he'd basically, you know, ridden a horse on the beach at 
you know, some point or the sort of county fair and, and, and that was it. And so they, they weren't prepared for this. And there were a couple of guys, actually JR, the chief, was a pretty good um, horse rider. Uh, and Mark Nooch, who was the ODA commander, um, he'd, you know, grown up in Kansas at rodeos and stuff. So he was okay. Um, but most of the guys, uh, but again, it sort of speaks to their, you know, adaptability and they're just like, well, I guess we're going to have to ride horses then. But um, these were sort of scrawny, mean horses, and the saddles were just sort of bits of two by four with a carpet on top of them. And they were made for sort of skinnier, lighter people than these Americans. And so, I mean, it was really painful and dangerous. You know, if you fall off one of those horses or, you know, uh, you you know fall down a sort of a, a ravine and um, or even if you just fall from sort of six foot, Hi, you know you you can break you know you can you can break bones, uh, but they just they just did it. And David, there's a again there's a scene in the book where I think it's a 14 hour ride, um, and David's just sort of in a world of, of of pain, and he can hear he can see planes flying overhead, he can explosions in the distance. Um, he can't talk to anybody because I think it was Scott that was ahead of him. He's, he's you know he's, he's he's too far ahead. He starts sort of almost hallucinating. I mean, he starts talking to his father who died a number of years earlier. He sort of, he can't get off the horse to, to urinate. So he just does it on the horse. And so this was, yeah, this was pretty, um, this was pretty tough stuff. And they just, and they did it. The tale that follows with Team Alpha, then pursuing the Taliban, eventually taking Mazi Sharif. It makes me fully understand, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, why Afghanistan is unwinnable why that nation is unconquerable and why really most westernized countries have no business going there regardless of the hate that may be taking root. It's well explained. It's well exposed in one instance where they're talking about some of the Taliban prisoners and the abuse that these Uzbek fighters are delivering on them. Um, I believe it's the part where Abdul Salman, Salman, oh, yeah. uh, who is one of Dostrum's, guards he's one of his henchmen there you know he's pulling out these taliban prisoners to be interviewed and i mean he's crushing them in the face with the stock of his rifle breaking teeth breaking jaws breaking cheekbones and when pressed on it by the cia intel officer you know don't do that man we got to interview these guys the description is just like you feel it you feel why these folks may never get along and these wounds are just too deep explain why these Uzbek fighters would just as soon kill the Taliban prisoners than talk to them. Well, so um, Abdul Salman, um, he he'd been in he'd been a prisoner of the of the Taliban, so he'd been brutal, brutalized. And you know, there's and the and the you know the brutality is you know sort of physical and psychological. It's also sexual. There's a lot of rape that goes on. Um, but these are these are sort of tribal ethnic um, hatreds that you know are just sort of you know, bred into people. Now that point right there begins to highlight the biggest theme. And really, I think one of the biggest takeaways from this incredible book, Harndon's research into team alpha reveals how the CIA strategy of using small teams comprised of CIA Intel officers and special forces units combined with local warlords driven by both personal greed and a mutual hatred for the Taliban was actually one of the only truly effective strategies the U.S. pursued in Afghanistan. And eventually, thanks to mission creep, the Pentagon, overzealous goals, we really got away from that. 
But Harnden shares how the story in this book gives Americans seeking to understand this entire conflict a better picture of what Afghanistan really is. One of the fascinating things for me about this story was that even though you had, um, like you said, some of the Americans who knew more about Afghanistan than almost anybody else in America, J.R. Seeger, for instance, he maintains this day, Afghanistan is not a country. It's just a, a, you know, an ethnic patchwork. It's not a nation. But we try to build a nation you know, in our own image with you know, centralized democracy. And David, who understands um, sort of nuances of um, Afghan uh, tribes and, and ethnicities and customs and, and also, you know, more than I think anybody. I mean, he talked to me. Um, in fact, he sort of said that this was a realization that he came to when he was out there in, in, in 2001, that it's like the Afghan onion, peeling the layers of the Afghan onion. And he came to the conclusion that it would take him several lifetimes to be able to understand this place. And he probably wouldn't fully understand it even, even at the end of that. And so, you know, the realization there is, well, if that's how David Tyson, you know, Afghan specialist and, you know, multilinguist feels, what's the, you know, 20 year old grunt who's going to be coming to a fob, you know, into Afghanistan in, in, in 2002 and doesn't speak any language at all beyond, you know, basic English. Uh, how's he going to fare? And so, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, another tr sort of, I feel a sort of poignant element of this story is that we were sort of a victim um, or America was kind of a victim of the success of the CIA and, and Team Alpha and Jawbreaker and, and the other teams and the ODAs in 2001, because they made it, it, it was incredibly difficult and it was incredibly risky, but they kind of made it look easy. And so at the end of 2001, you know, Rumsfeld and, and co and, you know, others in the Bush administration uh, and, and in the military, well, you know, this, you know, we just took out one regime and, you know, we'll get the UN and the State Department to sort out the details. And this guy Karzai will just sort of prop him up and give him money and it'll it'll work because people naturally want democracy. Um, so what you know, where are we going to go next? Oh, Iraq, you know. And so um, I think one of the ironies of this story is. If they got bogged down, if, um, you know, Team Alpha had been, you know, unluckier, unluckier sort of early on and, you know, two or three of them being killed, an airstrike that went wrong that, you know, taken out half the ODA or something. And, you know, if basically if it, if they hadn't have succeeded in the way they they did, then we might not have gone to Iraq and we may have realized much earlier than we did that Afghanistan was actually pretty tough not to crack. So, so many sort of layers in stories like this, I think. Right on. Well, if you need to get a lesson in the complexity of the global war on terrorism, the initial phase that was Afghanistan, I highly recommend you read First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. And uh, military veteran, dual citizen, my Brit brother, Toby Harnden, uh, one heck of a great job, man. I truly enjoyed the book and hearing the story of Mike Spann and the various members of Team Alpha. Their story should never be forgotten. Just a great read. Thank you very much, Phil. I really appreciate that. Now, I hope this podcast piqued your interest in the book. There's no way we could have given it enough time to get through all the incredible details. The dramatic shootout that cost Mike Spann his life, and that we heard earlier David Tyson running from the scene and just, you know, 
torn up clothes and an AK-47 in one hand and a pistol in the other, and the bravery he demonstrated when he took out a dozen Taliban fighters. But that's just one part of this one. The backstories about every single person on Team Alpha, uh, this book, again, is just lights out. And the author, Toby Harnden, I mean, not just a Royal Navy veteran, but a veteran foreign correspondent, his life alone, we've left details out that we could easily have him back and talk for another hour on. In fact, as I sit here and edit this interview, I'm disappointed I didn't ask him about the time he was arrested in Africa or faced prosecution in Northern Ireland. But that's why I encourage you to go check out his website, tobyharnden.com. That's T-O-B-Y-H-A-R-N-D-E-N.com. And as usual, I'll be back again next week with another great veteran and more incredible stories made for you every week right here at CBS Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.